Hello, listeners. Today I have a uh, special version of the podcast. I'm actually in the car driving back to uh, my apartment. I just had the opportunity to go to a wedding of a very good friend of mine. So I'm driving back with another very good friend. And he's uh, he and I are going to have a conversation about some different topics. He's got some different things he wants to ask. And we'll see where the conversation goes. As, as you probably very well know, conversations never seem to stick on a singular topic. But uh, if you haven't figured that out by now, um, not sure why you're listening. But welcome anyway. And uh, let's get started. Uh, Brian, do you want to say hi? Hello. Yes, uh, my name is Brian. And I'm in the driver's seat right now, which means... Uh, I will, from time to time, be talking slowly or with long pauses, but I'm, I'm here to enjoy this conversation with you all and with Titus, and it's going to be a fun ride. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> yeah, that's a little, probably a little formal for that. Um, yeah, so there'll, there'll be some, some road noise in the background, maybe a little bit of music to kind of keep the mood, but uh, yeah, I hope you, hope you enjoy this, and we'll see, we'll see where it goes. So, uh, Brian... You mentioned to me last night that you had something that you did actually want to talk about in particular to focus this next hour of the drive. Uh, so do you want to explain what that is and explain your argument? Yeah, so this is uh, not an idea that I am putting forward to try to necessarily convince you or anyone listening to this podcast, but rather a topic for discussion. Uh, and I want to see where it leads the conversation Um, and all the different trails of thought that might be interconnected to it. So uh, the idea is to go back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden. Um, And it's a topic about Adam and Eve and the fall. But before I go into the idea, the idea itself is a fairly straightforward, simple one, the argument. Um, But let me start off with uh, the premise. I'm going to ask you, Titus, um, do we take as a premise that the relationship between man and woman, uh, between husband and wife, uh, here's where coming back from a wedding, that um, that is a mirror of the relationship between God and his church? Yeah, I mean, obviously in... Oh, the loud spike there. The... Oh, what was it? The first, it's not first Corinthians. First Corinthians is the one that he referenced. It's the Peter text, isn't it? That references the, oh, what is that text from? I'll probably cut this bit out, but there's a, there's, there is a specific text where Peter actually, or where Paul, um, talks about the relationship of man and woman as actually being Christ in his church. So it is made explicitly clear that that is the condition, um, with, man representing uh, Christ and the wife representing the church. So it's in it's in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Right, where where Paul is giving his instructions to the church. And this actually comes up in the table of duties between husbands and wives where um, Paul actually makes reference to Christ uh, Christ's reference to um, the, the words in the Garden of Eden given to uh, explain the ordinance of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, I tell you that this mystery regards Christ and his church. So, yes, that is that is a biblically verifiable uh, presupposition. 
And now, um, for the sake of completeness, for the context of Genesis, where we don't have that explicit distinction between God the Father, God the Son, in the text, we say that a husband and wife are like Christ in the church. Um, can we say that that also applies to the Godhead as depicted in Genesis? Um, as in the, in the degree that Christ is doing the will of the Father, um, that God is one in his will towards his church. What do you think about that? That distinction between between Christ being the groom and the church being the bride versus God, the unity in Trinity, also being the groom for his church. So, so are you asking, like, when when we're dealing with marriage, is it is can we drive a distinction between it being Christ Himself as a as the man versus the the the, the unity of the Godhead? That the, the, are you saying that the unity of the Godhead is what is represented here, or what what's your what's your statement? Um, could you clarify? Yeah. So, for the purpose of the uh, argument that I want to present, can we base Actually, I don't actually need to go into this argument. I'm going to skip around this, because it is a nuanced distinction. Um, we can come back to it later, but... Here's another question. Can okay. we, I, I am going to come back to this later. Um, but the main idea of the question was that... Is the will of God towards his church one? Is, is the will of the Son the same as the will of the Father? Such that when we see what God does and what God says is good, that this serves as an example for what is good for man in relationship with his bride. Yep. Okay, that's, that's my premise. Given this premise, when... Mankind fell when Adam took of the fruit, the forbidden fruit. Did God sin by letting him partake of that fruit? Did God sin? Did God sin? No. Exactly. That was easy. Okay. So here is the argument then. If it was not sinful for God to let man make that choice to fall did Adam sin by letting Eve be tempted or letting Eve fall yes why alright alright I'm gonna try and play with this then uh, because I'm, I'm curious to see if you can if, if through exploration we can come to a different uh, answer here but here's how I would put it when Okay. Hmm. We clearly know that Adam was Adam was tasked with not eating the fruit himself. And he passes this on to Eve. He catechizes her. He teaches her what God says about this particular fruit. That in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. So he has he has rightly performed his office as the as the head of the household, as the, the pastor, one could say, in this 
first relationship, in this first family, in this in this church, right, where two are gathered. Um, he has performed his his duty properly in catechizing her and telling her what this what this fruit means. Um, there's also the um, extrapolation of this, where you could say, and I believe this is from Luther, where he, he, he makes the argument that this tree would actually be the place where they would have been able to worship, where they would have been able to praise God, because it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that, God told them that it would kill them and that they shouldn't eat of it, therefore. So in other words, eating something that kills you is bad, so don't do it, is what God says, thereby giving them the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. They know that God is good, and they know that the tree, that eating of the tree is evil. So there, there they actually have that knowledge. The, that knowledge of what is good and evil is not withheld from them by them not eating it. And this is the great lie of Satan, right, at, in the garden, is that when he... When he tempts the woman, he is tempting her to, to, to actually declare her own will as, as determining what is good, right? She looks and she sees that it is good for food and eats, and then she gives to her husband and he eats. It's, it's in their decision that, well, I guess it looks okay. Actually, it's in her decision in saying, well, it looks okay. She is deceived and eats, and it's, well, the, the idea that if she hands it to him, he would have known what it is. He knew what this fruit was. He'd seen it before. He knew he wasn't supposed to eat of it. He knew she had eaten of it. She wasn't dead yet. Might as well give it a shot. That uh, that issue that we don't understand as to why he does that is, is... That is beyond us because we cannot comp quite comprehend it. I almost wonder if there's a certain aspect of it where he's... Uh, He's doing what he's supposed to do after she eats it. I don't know. I don't know for sure that that might be something to to play around with. But right, if if at this point she's cursed, and and if he wasn't, I mean, that would that would be almost even worse. It, it, although he had still he had still sinned, so it would, you know, not eating of it isn't really logical in that scenario. Once he has allowed her to be tempted, um, so I would say that. Yeah, you know, this is the context. And I would say that from this context, then, when we're dealing with man as being there when woman is tempted, she, she is able to speak back something to the, to the devil when the devil gives his, his temptation, right? She says, you know, we're not to eat of it, nor, nor even to touch it, lest we die. And that's, that's an ex expanding on God's word, and we don't know where that comes from. We don't know whether that comes from the man or if it comes from her. But what they've done is they've added, they have therefore added to what God said. And while they may have added to it for the sake of staying away, they still added to it. I mean, this was, this was much like what the Pharisees did later um, in Jesus' day. And this is what uh, I mean, we continue to do. We, we, we make our own rules, and we keep our own rules, and we feel, feel good about ourselves. So this is what they're doing from the very, from the, from the very beginning, even before the fall, during this, during this period. Something happens where they add to God's word. They add some extra things. 
which would mean that that's not necessarily a bad idea, but to say that God said that is wrong. Um, so to put our words in God's mouth would be would be improper, incorrect, and uh, I would dare say sinful. From the from the Mosaic context, we would say that would be a breaking of the uh, second commandment. Yes. Of uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's the the Lutheran numbering of the commandments there, but. It's the idea that you are misusing God's name when you say that God said this, when he did not actually say that. You are misusing, you are invoking his authority to claim that words are true, which those words are not true. Right, right. So, so already we have, we have this issue where that we're lacking clarity and we've added to the scriptures. And we don't know who that comes from. But we also know that Adam has done some good catechetical instruction and the woman knows what she's doing, and then, right, we get Satan's lie. And interestingly enough, he doesn't he doesn't attack their addition. He doesn't attack the thing that she said, oh, like, oh, it's okay to touch it. Because he's not trying to deceive her into touching it. He's trying to get her to eat it. And so he just like Satan's a crafty, crafty fellow here. Um, where it's almost like, you know, if he had gone and said, Well, if you touch it, you'll be fine. It's like, well, yeah but we don't want to or because that's not proper and you know then you you almost have a built-in safeguard there of if if Satan were to attack that that thing that God hadn't said that you've done to say we to, to be pious like your pious act that you're doing for your own good and if pi- if Satan comes after that you can let it go because it is not mandated by God and it's within the realm of possibility that that Adam might have instituted his own rules regarding the tree in addition to what God said. Um, as long as Adam did not say this is what God said, like Adam as head over creation, we could say he had the authority to institute his own rules about, you know, don't even touch the tree. But is that what Eve said? That's kind of ambiguous in the text, whether... Eve was misusing the name of the Lord in that sense, if that was the possibility. I suppose we're going on a bit of a tangent here, but it's an interesting question. Yeah, and it does, uh, the woman's response is, um, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, well, or you will die. There we go. Yeah, so so there is there is an adding here, but what the serpent says doesn't doesn't attack that it doesn't attack this thing that you know may or may not be what god said but we don't i mean we don't have it as what god said so it is as far as we can tell an addition but regardless satan doesn't go after it he goes after what god actually said and he twists that instead he says you will not surely die or uh, you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's the lie. It's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not lying in the second part. He's not lying in the, in the part where he says, uh, for God knows. He, well, yes, he does know that, that you'll know good and evil, but the problem is that you'll know you're evil. You already knew that, that, you were, that this thing was evil, that the fruit, that death is evil, that you shouldn't have it. And that God is there to give you what is good. So, 
Satan's lie is the first thing he says, and then he couches it in the truth. Um, and and he also, but he also he couches that truth in a lie as well, as though knowing good and evil is something that they didn't already have. And and so many people, I mean, so many Christians, I think today, pick up on this and and think that he's actually telling the truth that they don't know what good and evil is before before the fall. They do know because they know they're not supposed to eat of the the, the tree. And so they therefore have the knowledge of good and evil. That's why I kind of started with that was Satan here is lying and, and and he is and yet he's couching it very, very carefully to make it sound appealing and make it sound like something that they should desire. That they are, he's making it sound like God's creation is incomplete. That there's some other thing that needs to go on. But we just came, like this is Genesis chapter 3. But the end of creation is is the creation of woman, right? In Genesis chapter chapter uh, chapter one, or gen- beginning of Genesis chapter two, to thus the heavens and the, and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Um, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work. God had created and made um, because it was good right it was very good yeah chapter chapter 131 God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good and that's the end of the sixth day and then and then he finishes up and he's like alright we're good God and then God rests so we we have this this goodness that is verified by God, we, we dive into it in a different form, right? In a more focused form for man in chapter two, right? To, to explore more on uh, who, who man is in this garden and what his role is. We get the, the naming of the animals, the, the stewardship of creation uh, identified, which is really what, what Adam does then throughout throughout the rest of the account, right? He is stewarding creation. He's doing his job, taking, tending the garden and preaching God's word. That's all we know that he does in the garden. That's all we ever hear about. And well, so now when, when Christ or sorry, when, when God is walking in the garden and, um, after Adam and Eve have fallen, after they have eaten the fruit that was forbidden to them, what is it um, what is it that he says to them specifically that they are cursed for what what is the reason he gives for their condemnation for each of them for Adam and Eve all right let's go through that um, nothing more fun than reading the scriptures yes uh, that's not facetious um, actually just like it I think I'm excited I'm weird I shouldn't be weird that's beside the point then God said to the woman, right? This is chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. Then God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field, etc. Um, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Um, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, um, cursed is the ground for your sake. 
Okay, so we have a specific purpose-based uh, curse on the serpent and on man, and woman is just cursed. So the thing that I'm going to pu pull out for focus on there is the reason that God gave for Adam. It was not because you let your wife sin, but because you listened to your wife and likewise sinned. Just as she was tempted by the devil, so also Adam was tempted by Eve, and he did not exercise his proper headship, as we talked about before, but he also did not exercise self-control, and he did succumb to that temptation that his bride, his body, sent to him. So, back to the original question. As Adam catechized Eve, so also God catechized Adam by telling him, do not eat of this tree, and instituting that, that distinction between good and evil through that, that command. Is this also then how... Is this the same relationship between God and Adam as between Adam and Eve? In God creating Adam and giving him this catechetical command, and Adam being head over Eve and giving her that same catechesis. Hmm. What, so I'm going to just unpack something and then I'll ask you for clarification on that um, again. Because uh, it seems like you're drawing out from the fact that that he is cursed not because of he not because he actually ate it, but because not 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 exclusively because he ate it, and not because he let her eat it, but because he did it himself. So his is a very specific, a specific curse because of his own actions. Right. That Adam's curse is because he did eat of the tree, and in his case, he ate of it because he was tempted by Eve, who was tempted by Satan. But his curse is specifically because he partook in the eating. Less than because, or maybe not even because, he let Eve make that choice. So, so the issue for him is that he broke God's command rather than the fact that somebody else did. Correct. Okay. Well, so then you could say maybe, maybe that it wasn't wasn't necessarily because God never said don't have anybody else do it he said don't do it yourself uh, so perhaps there was no law on see and the other thing is to whom is the law is that is that instruction given it's given to both of them right correct so it's it's given to Adam to be steward of over the creation to to be the one who catechizes he is given headship over creation but the law is given to Adam, just as the law was given to Moses for Israel. But Moses teaches Israel. It, all of Israel is accountable to this law, but it was given through Moses, just as mankind is given this law, and it is given through Adam. See, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time under, like, quite making congruent the ideas that you're playing with, because on the one hand, it sounds like you're saying Adam Adam did not w didn't sin in letting her do that and yet he was also 
he also had headship over her, even in this position, to to run, to lead and, and, and guide the church. So here's a related question. In the fall, in the curse, the husband is ruling over his bride. This is the curse to Eve. He will rule over you. What does that look like in a fallen world versus in the perfect creation in the garden? What does it mean as a curse for Adam to rule over his bride? Why don't you go into that? I would argue that well, there are two ways that a proper godly husband and wife relationship can be broken down. An ideal, I'm going to make an analogy here. An ideal marriage is is like a dance. You have you have the lead, you have the follow, you have the husband, you have the bride. But they act as one on the dance floor. Both are moving their feet, both are looking at each other and paying attention to each other, following each other's cues. But the husband still leads and the wife still follows, but they act as one. They are one body on the dance floor. There are two ways that that dance can be broken down. One is where the, let's say that the lead is not doing his job, he's not leading properly. And so the follow, say the bride in the analogy, ends up having to take control over the dance, which is a shame for, it is shameful for, for the husband, for the leader of the dance. He's not doing his job. We see this in the book of Judges as the, the leaders of, of God's people are forsaking their duty. Um, and we have even uh, the woman judges rising up to the shame of the men. Um, but so that there's there's one way that a dance can break down is that the man's not doing his job or if the woman usurps his job. The other way that the dance can break down is if the man I will say rules over his dance partner and starts forcibly pushing her around the dance floor. That's how I would describe ruling over. If if on the one hand um, the bride or on the dance floor is rebelling against the lead and she starts trying to lead the dance. If he is going to maintain a godly order, then he might have to start pushing back and that's that's no good. That's not a good dance. Then that's just conflict. That's two two independent minds butting against each other. On the other hand, if you have um, the the follow not moving her feet at all, and then the husband has to carry her across the dance floor and forcibly move her about, that is also ruling over her. In both cases, for the man to maintain his headship in the good, godly design, he is having to rule over her and force his will upon her, either to keep her from um, falling away from passiveness or to keep her from falling away from um, rebellion. So I would, this, this is my take on how um, in the curse, marriage is torn apart. When your desire will be for your husband, your desire will be to, to lead him, to own him, uh, but he will rule over you as, as the man who still 
tries to maintain headship, he will he will butt back, um, and there will be forcible control going on. Uh, does that idea make sense? Yeah, it does. The it does because you have that you have the ideal picture uh, that is broken in both ways, and 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 like you said, it doesn't necessarily always work out that. Um, that it is one partner who is more rebellious than the other, but but if, for example, right, because I think here's uh, where we can go with this in regards to focusing on the woman is that that is how, you know, that, that Christ is the ideal male partner for his church. He is the one who's taking care of us, even though we, as the, as the church, are um, imperfect and uh, not a particularly good dance partner. Uh, wh- wh- whereas in human relationships, oftentimes it's it's issues with both partners not quite knowing how to dance and and not dancing harmoniously uh, as as is proper. Uh, so so in in our in our life, I just want to nuance that point. In our lives, there is fault on both sides, but in our relationship with Christ, the fault is entirely with us uh, and He as our as our head and our guide in that uh, metaphorical dance would would be doing what he ought to and what he must do uh, to rectify our our uh, improper improper actions and and make the dance make the dance work regardless yeah that that really is you could describe the gospel the fall and the redemption in those terms mankind that god's church god's people fell away we we forsook the dance and we we saw satan saying hey don't dance with him do do your own thing or implicitly dance with me listen to my words don't listen to god's words and so we fell away and we forsook god but but he he's he brought us back even in our fallen state that he entered he entered the chaos he entered the chaos of the postmodern dance moves (laughs) And and created order out of it. He 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 is that, and I like that idea that God is so orderly that even though we have created a disorder, right? That even though we broke the world, when He enters into it, He He is able to redeem it. That there is nothing there is nothing we could do in that. Um, well, in that all all our all our ways are guided by Him ultimately. Um, that, that that God was able to bring about His redemption alone is is a is a beautiful work as as to the the power and and glory and and mercy of God that that He He was able to take our fallen and broken world and and still still redeem us through it rather than destroying it entirely and starting anew. So, going back to the question of Adam watching Eve being tempted. We know he was there. What would have been the implications if he had stepped in? If Eve is being tempted, and and let's say that Adam does have the firm resolve that no, this is this is wrong, that we should not break God's law in this. If he had intervened before Eve had sinned and said, no, stop talking to him, and hey, you plucked the fruit, no, I'm going to take it out of your hands. In a perfect world, before Eve has had any sin in her, 
from eating that fruit. Would that have been Adam ruling over his bride forcibly by not letting her have the chance to say no to Satan? Oh, okay. So here now we're now we're getting into some other question, a different question, and I think it kind of gets to asking, well, why did Adam fall in the first place? Why did God allow man to fall, right? Or or was that was that something that he could have prevented if he had wanted to? Um, and the thing is, we don't know. So I I don't know. At this point, I think we might be we entering a realm of of not being quite able to. To answer that question, since the, the scriptures do not speak as to why Adam ate, except in that they say he was deceived. Um, but we don't say how he could have been deceived. We we are not told that. And so similarly, I think to say that Adam had the response had he had to let woman choose because. Uh, because of the freedom or something. I, I don't know if we can accurately say that. That seems fair. God, the scriptures do not give the details of what was going on in any of their thoughts or what the implications would have been in the alternate scenario. Uh, but two things we do know. We know that God knew that Adam and Eve were in this temptation and he did not intervene, but he called them to, to their guilt afterwards. And we know that God's charge against Adam was that he listened to his wife, specifically, rather than that he let her sin. So this goes back to the original premise. Did God sin when he let Adam fall? No, by definition, no. So, so I would rather... I, I would say we can't use that as an argument, though. Why not? Because God cannot sin. By his own, by own, by his own definitions, God can't, God can't sin because to be, to be sinful would be to be, like, in order to be sinful, God would have to be incoherent. He would have to, he would have to be inconsistent with himself. Because God is the, God is unique. He is the Almighty, Infinite God. Well, because I mean, by definition, sin, right? Sin is missing the mark. God is the one who sets the mark. He so, is the mark. yeah, he is the mark. So, so you can't miss it if you, if you're there. It's just by definition impossible. So, so God could not sin. So to say, well, if God didn't sin, then well, no, because it would be like saying, well, if God is God, then right. I feel like you're 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 stating a a statement of of the nature of God, and then trying to extrapolate that in a different form for for man. The the problem being that God cannot sin, but man did. So, so here's a distinction I'd like to pick apart. There's the idea that God is God and therefore he cannot sin. And the idea that God being God and not, capable of, not being capable of sinning means that everything he does is good. Not simply that he can get away with sinning and not be charged with sin because he's God. But rather that because he is God, everything he does is perfect and is something that we should consider as good and here so here is then the extension which you might disagree with is God's behavior something that we should emulate to the extent that it applies to our lives obviously there's a point where we cannot say hey 
God created the universe, therefore I should create the universe. You know, God is God. God rules over his creation, and, oh, therefore, I should... I, God, 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 wrote, God wrote the Gospels, therefore I should write Gospels. You know, that's obviously taking that idea too far. But if God says something is good, can we also then conform to Christ, as, as Paul says? Can we also consider that to be good? in the sense of how God manages his household, does that image apply to Adam's management of his household with Eve? I think there is a a slight uh, differential. First of all, I'd like to say I'm a little bit frustrated that you get all the nice uh, musical flourishes. Uh, We had a fantastic musical flourish there as you were speaking, and, and... uh, it was it was just it was just brilliant, but I don't want it to sound like your points are better than mine. Um, not that this is a competition, but I've just I've just been noticing you've, you've gotten a lot of those. Um, so I think I think the the distinction here falls within the um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna actually argue a different point now. Um, partially right because I like taking opposing ideas because if you put ideas in opposition and you smash them together, you actually get to see which one stands and maybe they both fall apart. Um, but that's my mentality, and that's and that's why I'm I'm taking this position because I'm 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 posing this to you as someone taking the other position. So I'm really enjoying this conversation. So, like I said at the beginning, I'm not necessarily actually advocating for anyone listening to this to take my position, but I'm enjoying this this duality, this conversation. This is a, a nice medium for this kind of conversation. Why? Thank you, Brian. So so I'm going to actually go into um, a different idea about the the nature of man's perp- role within the creation because uh, when when god makes man he 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 gives him a, a special vocation within the garden he he gives him to a certain extent um, the the his own position and he says in uh, genesis 1 uh, he, he looks at the, the man and the woman. God blesses them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food to eat for you. And to the, every beast of the field, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Um, we know from chapter two that there is a new, a singular nuance to that, because he uh, also makes it so that that um, every every uh, thing is nuanced by the um, the reality that we ought not to that man is not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And because of that, you know what is good and what is evil. I'm just hammering that in because it's a distinction. Um, but here we get, right, so that's from chapter 15, or chapter 15, verse 15 of chapter 2, right? Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of the from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die, or dying you shall die. And then he says, it is not good for you to be alone. 
I will make a helper suitable for him. So, so this is day six. God has, God has created man and he gives him dominion. And my battery is running low. Oh no. And so when God, when God does this, he then, he then creates a, a helper. He, he, um, you can't very well fill the earth and subdue it if you don't have anybody to do that with, right? So I, the dominion comes afterwards to a certain extent that, but he does, he does give him every, every other tree in the garden. So, so when God creates man, he lets him know what is good and evil. And I, I, I wonder to a certain extent how much this allows Adam to recognize when when Eve, or when woman, right, because her name isn't Eve yet, when, when the dirt man realizes that the woman, the she-dirt man, is, is a, a being, right, a new and glorious being that comes from, from his own flesh, um, that he is able to realize this is good because God has given him the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. So he's able to rejoice in the creation of the she-dirt person because he, he knows that that is a good thing to have. And he has seen that from God's creation. From the rest of God's creation, he knows that this is the order of, of living creatures. So when God... Uh, we, we also hear from, I think it's Romans, correct me if I'm wrong, where, where Paul talks about how when, when man falls, all of creation falls with him. Right? Man, as the head of creation, is the one who is responsible for creation itself. And, and God actually gave him that authority. So when he, when he ends up sinning, the entirety of creation falls into futility with him. So to a certain extent, that is his, that then hit his, his, excuse me, it is then his responsibility not to do that because the command was given to him directly. It wasn't actually necessarily given to the woman. And this would, this would get to where maybe, maybe when she does it, it's actually not necessarily wrong. Um, we don't know. And I would or I don't know. And I'd say the text doesn't explicitly say that. Uh, except it does in the New Testament say that um, it was not the man who was deceived, but the woman. And um, she then uh, gave to her husband. What's that? What's that from? Oh, that might also be. Oh, this is. Um, this was in our readings in church this past Sunday. I believe this was First Timothy. It was First Timothy, chapter two, the second half. So after we get this fantastic section on oh that's 2nd Timothy no I don't want 2nd Timothy I want 1st Timothy after we get this great great section on God desiring all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth and men here right universal everybody's a man uh, in this in this context um, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve it was not Adam who was deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression um so there's definitely a statement here, at least in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that when the woman did this, 
she fell into transgression. Uh, in being deceived, she fell into transgression. Man was still, at that moment, the head of creation and the head of the church and the head of his bride. And God had given Adam to be the head of the church. He had given to a very specific man the role of of, of guiding the church, his church on, on earth. And so I would say this, this then gets to why Christ, when he, when he buys back the church, has that full authority. Uh, but, but at this time, right, why Adam is, the, is um, I would say that actually Adam does err because he is at this time the head of the church. And as the as the the man and as the head of all creation and as the one to whom God gave the words to guide his church to to tell them what is good and evil um, God made man his um, God made a man the one through whom the church is uh, moved forward and um, and led and guided and that man was Adam and when he and then he sits back and watches the woman fall into transgression, he, he he sits back and does nothing. But that is his role at that point. Um. And then when when Adam does it, once once Adam eats, he has fallen into transgression. the The whole creation is now cursed, even before God does it. God God simply comes and does His role, which is after man has now completely annihilated creation, I mean, he has, he has condemned creation to death. God comes and is there to, to offer mercy. <laughs> right? right? His role, his initial role, God's initial role in the, in, the, in the Garden of Eden is not even to provide condemnation, is not to preach the law, it's to preach, hey, repent, turn away from this, confess your sins, and, and then they all pass the buck. And they all... Oh, no, the woman deceived me, and I. she's responsible, God, and, and that makes you responsible because you gave her to me. This woman who you gave me, she she gave it to me, and, and I ate. Don't ask me how I got in the area or why I ate this fruit, knowing full well what it was, but, but it's your fault, God. And, and there he has, he has shown the complete abandonment of his vocation, that he, that, that, that's, that is the evidence of the fall into sin to a certain extent. And that is also the, the absolute rebellion. I mean... God is God has given you a chance. He hasn't He hasn't struck you dead, which shows that He's merciful because He said, "Dying you will die," and He's He's prolonged this period for the sake of showing mercy, because that is that is God's role once His very good creation has fallen apart and has gone into that which is not good. Um, and and in that in that that is that is is the role of God. He then serves in that role, but I would say his role before that is not, right? God doesn't have to show mercy if there's no need for mercy. God doesn't have to show, um, to preach the law if he's already preached it. And since he's already given that law to man and all things are very good, God did what was good and we cannot but look and say what God did was good. And then when he comes back after the fall and provides mercy, we cannot but say that is good. But Adam, when he, 
you know, in that he lets his his bride, in that he he sits back and watches the the ones under his care to fall into evil, does not do what is right. Christ, on the as the opposite of this, does not allow his church to fall. And this, I think, would be where I would draw the distinction, right? At the beginning, in the beginning, Adam sinned by letting his wife uh, eat of the fruit because it was because he was head of the church, and it was his job to ensure that that did not happen. It was not God's position. So, so you you say there, you you point out, Christ did not let his church fall. Unpack that, because obviously Adam and Eve did fall. But I would I would tie into in uh, when Christ comes, when Christ came, after he is baptized, he goes out into the desert. He is with his church. His church has fallen. His church is sinful. And then temptation is brought to him. The devil comes and tempts him and tries to get him to fall just as the devil led away his church, his bride. But Christ, unlike Adam, he repels this temptation and stays true to God's word. So there's, there's this two ideas, competing ideas, I think that you, you've pulled out. There is the idea that Adam is as head of creation, as head of his bride in one body with his bride, he is tainted when his bride is tainted. Is, is that a correct summary of one of, one of these points? Yeah, that's that's correct. So may have one of the points, yes. And then there's this other idea that um, that the head Christ is not tainted by the sin of his church, but rather as a sinless, true son of man and son of God, he is able to atone for her by his sinlessness and purchasing her back. So well, I'm running low on battery, but I'm going to unpack, unpack what I was thinking, and then I'll, I'll close it out. Is that okay with you? Sounds great. All right. Here's, here's the distinction. Christ, we know that, God, that Christ shows, um, shows mercy and shows, shows that he will not allow his church to fall from the very moment that it is his responsibility again. Because he takes, God takes it upon himself as the first thing out of his mouth when he is when he has to come and show mercy the first thing he says is cursed are you serpent i will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel that moment right there is god saying i will not do the same thing i will not stand idly by i will not do what adam did i will redeem my church i will keep them because even though they are now broken and fallen, I will I will avenge them and redeem them and buy them back. And I will take them back uh, to the proper relationship. I will I will sacrifice myself and bring my church, bring my, my people back into a right relationship with me. This is what Adam should have done. Um, but he didn't. And this is what Christ does, is that even though... And, and he, his, is, his is a different role, because he's dealing with the church that has already fallen. But it would all almost be like saying, well, what happens if in the new creation we, we fall again? Is that would, would God be doing something wrong by doing that? Would Christ be doing something wrong if we fell in the new creation? It wouldn't happen. It can't happen. 
because of who Christ is and what he has done and, and, and uh, what he has promised. He has promised that this will be a, a fullness of, of, of uh, goodness. And when we are in that new creation and we are able to, to see God face to face once more and walk once more with him, our head, our head will not stand idly by because he did not stand idly by. When we were, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he showed his mercy in coming and redeeming us from them. And so that is the distinction we can draw between the two Adams, between the, the, the dust man who watched and did not serve as the head of his church, as the head of his bride, and let her fall into um, transgression. And Christ, who even though his bride had fallen into transgression, still did what was good. He still did the will of his father. He still did what God commanded for the sake of his bride, even suffering death himself, right? What, if, if, even if Adam had stood idly by, what should he have done? He should have gone to God and said, kill me instead. Let me die because, because she is, is a good thing. And I have, I have sinned in let in letting this happen in in sitting and and doing this and giving her the, the the wrong whatever whatever it was that is his vocation there in in not letting her do it and if and if she has done it to redeem her himself and he doesn't but Christ did and we know that because he did this because he was willing to even lay down his life to suffer the wrath of God for all of our sins we know that we know that when we are united with him in that we are united with him now and in the life to come that he will not allow that to happen, that he will preserve us from evil, that he will continue us in, in, this, in this blessed relationship and in the truth um, now and, and through all, all, all ages. Um, so, that's, so I would say no, Adam, Adam did make the mistake and, and this is highlighted. I, I thank you, Brian, because this is almost brought out one of the beautiful ways in which Christ has set himself apart as our as our true redeemer. So, do you want to close out? Uh, I don't think I could close out with much uh, better summary than that of that beautiful gospel message, which is that of of Christ's redemptive work for His bride, His church. Which you, as as you just described, I say this is most certainly true, and it is a a true joy and a blessing for us as the redeemed church of of Christ. Uh, Yes, it is. It is a beautiful thing. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brian, for, for being able to share this with me and, and posing that question. I, I truly appreciate that, that uh, opportunity. So thanks for, thanks for being on here. Thanks for uh, letting me record. And uh, thank you, listener, for, for joining us. See you next time.